Hi, and welcome to episode 51 of the Giants of the Faith podcast. This is the podcast where we look at men and women from the age of the church whose lives have had an impact for the kingdom of God. And we do that with the ultimate goal of finding inspiration and strengthening our own faith. And this is the second episode in season four of this podcast, where we're exclusively focusing on hymn writers. The subject of today's episode wrote what is widely considered the most popular English language hymn of all time, and especially in the United States, Amazing Grace. And I'm speaking, of course, of John Newton. Newton was born on July 24th under the Julian calendar, 1725, in London, England, to parents John and Elizabeth. His father was a sea captain, and his mother was a devout nonconformist Christian. A nonconformist was a Christian who did not accept or conform to the state church, the Church of England. In this context, they were the spiritual descendants of the Puritans. She taught him both the Bible and song, primarily from Isaac Watts's Divine Songs Attempted in Easy Language for the Use of Children. Now, unfortunately, Elizabeth died of tuberculosis when John was only six years old. When his father returned from sea to find that she had died, he almost immediately remarried, and while John's stepmother was initially very attentive, she eventually had her own children, and she began to push him away. By age nine, John was sent to boarding school where he spent the next two years. But by the time he was 11, his father pulled him from school and took him to sea to work on his ship. John spent the next decade learning the sea and giving himself over to all manner of debauchery and evilness. He was a coarse man by his own reckoning, even among sailors. And his one light during this period of his life was that he met and fell in love with Mary Catlett. Mary would later become his bride, but Newton was not ready for marriage at this point in his life. He'd moved far from the teachings of his godly mother, teachings more forgotten than rejected, and he had much further to sink before he was to be redeemed. In 1743, Newton was captured and pressed into service in the Royal Navy aboard the HMS Harwick. He tried to escape, but he was caught and given a flogging of 96 lashes in front of the crew. And he was also busted down from midshipman to the lowly rank of seaman. Then he plotted murder against the captain, and he also planned to commit suicide. But in the end, he didn't attempt either. Not surprisingly, the captain of the Harwick was eager to rid himself of Newton. He was transferred to the slave ship the Pegasus. The Pegasus ran a route from the Caribbean and North America to West Africa, taking goods from the colonies to trade with the Africans for slaves. Now, the crew of the Pegasus didn't like Newton, and he reciprocated. My personal opinion, you've got to be a pretty vile dude not to get along with the crew of a slave ship. Anyway, when the captain of the Pegasus died and the first mate was elevated, a man that Newton particularly disliked, Newton knew that he had to leave the ship. So in 1745, he left the Pegasus and took up employment with a slave trader named Amos Clow in Africa. At one point, Newton became ill, and he was unable to accompany Clow on a slaving trip. And when that happened, Clow gave him into the service of his mistress, a Princess Paye of the African Sherbro tribe. Newton became, in essence, Paye's slave. And she treated him just as she treated her other slaves. He was beaten, starved, tortured, and brutalized, just as the slave that John helped transport were. And when Clow returned from his voyage, 
he did nothing to relieve Newton's suffering. If anything, the torment only intensified. But John was able to smuggle out two letters to his father, who by this time was retired from sailing. This was what John considered the lowest point of his life, where he was a slave to the slaves. Eventually, Clow and Paye sold or gave, not exactly sure, Newton to another slaver in the area. And at that point, Newton was no longer under constant threat and torture. He began to accept his new station in life, and he resigned himself to the slave trade for the rest of his life. But his father had received his letters, and he asked a friend, Joseph Manistee, to find John. Manistee engaged Captain Swanwick of the merchant ship the Greyhound to look for Newton during his trips to the African coast. In February 1747, the Greyhound was sailing off the coast of West Africa when Swanwick spotted a man in a canoe. He asked the man if he knew a John Newton, and the man replied that Newton was his partner. Swanwick couldn't believe it. He met with John, but Newton wasn't eager to return home. He'd given himself over to the darkness that was the slave trade, and he rejected Swanwick's offer of passage. But the captain had orders to bring Newton home, so he resorted to a lie to get Newton to come with him. He told him that Newton had an inheritance of 400 pounds per year waiting for him back home. He told him that he'd travel in luxury back to England, where he could receive this inheritance. And it was this money, and the dream of with it marrying Mary Catlett, that convinced him to board the Greyhound. The voyage home was also the beginning of a voyage toward God for Newton. He read the devotional Imitation of Christ, primarily to pass the time, not because he was interested in the subject matter, mostly because it was one of the few books on the ship. But his conscience was bothered. What if these things were true, he wondered. But he did his best to put these thoughts out of his mind. And then one night, in March 1748, things began to change personally for John. The Greyhound was sailing in the North Atlantic when it began to be lashed by a severe storm. The hull was breached and sails were torn, and John was thrown awake by a vicious wave washing over him. He and the other men on board began to work the pumps furiously in an effort to keep the battered ship afloat. When, after eleven days of being punished by the storm, Newton was too exhausted to work the pumps, he was lashed to the helm to try and hold the ship's course. In the fear and exhaustion, he recalled Proverbs 1 from the depths of his mind. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel, and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge, and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices." John saw himself in those verses, but he did cry out to the Lord for help, and he would remember that day for the rest of his life. Though he would not claim that at that point he was a believer, a true believer, it was clearly to him a major milestone on his road to belief. He began to pray for deliverance, and indeed, the ship was saved. The ship put into port in Luff Swilly, Ireland, for repairs, 
Newton from then on began to read the Bible and other works by Christians, and by the time the ship returned to England, Newton had succumbed to God and become a believer. In 1750, John married Mary, whom he called Polly, and that same year his father died of drowning. His conversion did not convince John to leave the sea or the slave trade. He continued in it, serving as mate or captain on many voyages hauling slaves from Africa to the colonies. He gave up gambling, swearing, and fornicating, and he began to treat the slaves on his ships with kindness, and he also began regular Bible study. For this, he was often mocked by the other sailors. But kindness is relative, surely, for a man who is participating in the mass movement of men from freedom to slavery, where they faced almost certain mistreatment and death. He continued in the slave trade until 1755, when he began having seizures and other health problems. He was advised by a doctor to find another line of work, and he took up a job as a coastal surveyor or tax collector. Would he have eventually left the slave trade of his own accord? We'll never know, but I see his declining health as Providence's way of forcing the move. With his separation from the slave trade, Newton began to see it for the evil that it truly was. He studied the Bible for hours a day, and he taught himself Greek and Hebrew. He already knew Latin from his childhood. And he also became enamored with the great evangelist George Whitefield. He traveled to hear him preach, and dined with Whitefield as often as he could. Although he was serving as a lay minister, he had a longing to enter full-time ministry, and he knew that he could not enter service in the Church of England without a good knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. So he applied for ordination in 1757, but he did not receive it until 1764, when he was sent to Olney to serve in the church there. He spent 16 years at Olney, where his respect among the members of the C of E and nonconformists alike grew. His church grew and it had to be expanded. In 1764, Newton anonymously published his autobiography, an authentic narrative of some remarkable and interesting particulars in the life of dot dot dot. Throughout the book, Newton spoke of God's grace and mercy in his life, despite the numerous nefarious things that he'd done. In 1767, the famous poet William Cowper moved to Olney. He and Newton collaborated on hymns and in 1779 published the volume Olney Hymns. It included Newton's best-known songs, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, and his best-known work, Faith's Review and Expectation, which we generally know as Amazing Grace. Soon after the publication of Only Hymns, Newton transferred to St. Mary Woolnoth in London, where he served for the remainder of his life. He became an outspoken abolitionist, and his life and sermons had a great impact on William Wilberforce. Of course, Wilberforce was the man who led the charge to end slavery in England, and I covered his life in episode 11, so check that out if you're interested. Wilberforce also helped shape Newton's anti-slavery views. And in 1788, Newton published Thoughts on the African Slave Trade in support of Wilberforce's campaign to end slavery. Newton's wife died in 1790, and she was buried at St. Mary. He published a book containing letters that he wrote about his wife and his grief. And he lived until 1807, where he died on December 21st and was buried beside his wife. In 1893, both were disinterred and moved to the church at Olney. 
Newton was a man who did great evil in his life, but also a man that God continually sought and called, and who, in the end, surrendered himself to God's grace. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. If you have any comments, shoot me an email at podcast at giantsofthefaith.com. Until next time, God bless. God bless.